So, Berto, I have some emails from listeners and patrons that they have for us to answer. What do you say we answer those questions, Berto? I would love it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Umberto? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I repair broken elevator buttons. This first email is from upper-tier patron Kathleen. She always has great questions for us, very short questions. If you could change three things about this country, what would you change, Berto? Three things. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, I wouldn't have known to say this one before recent times. But I would probably make it uh, reduce the power of the executive branch. (laughs) That is one thing I would change. Um, The second thing is I would make it a hell of a lot more modern, easy, and robust to vote. And uh, the third thing is I would carve out 30% of our land and make a new country and invite some people to move to it. <laughs> no, no, but... but uh, Pacifica, man. Pacifica. Pacifica, yeah, yeah. No, but, but uh, without doing that, actually, the other thing I would change is I would have uh, a greater emphasis on teaching, on like the, the kind of education that happens in the lower grades and the middle grades, on teaching logic and critical reasoning. So Interesting. So uh, that, that was, that's my number one, education program on how to think critically and rationally ah, uh, and understand, understand science. Now, I think I got an email from someone recently saying that they are a teacher and they do teach critical thinking, which I recognize. And I, I always Love say it. that whenever I talk, whenever I rail against our education system, I will always try to say, I know there are programs out there, there are teachers yeah. who are doing good work, but... Clearly, on average, we are not doing enough. Uh, Number two is education program regarding attachment theory. I Mm. think our listeners wouldn't be surprised on that one. Universally, when people learn about attachment theory, when people become a patron of the podcast and listen to my, I don't know, 10, 15-hour deep dive on attachment theory, and it's it's mind-blowing. And it's not my deep dive that's mind-blowing. It's the theory that's mind-blowing. Mm. The way it's taught in schools is so shallow. When you really internalize what is is what they're talking about, evolutionary psychology-wise, all that kind of stuff, it really tells you why your life has sucked occasionally mm. <laughs> in relationships wow. um, and at work and you know all these kinds of things. It, it's really mind-blowing. Uh, number three is a thousand times more funding in mental health services, mm. which would be, you know, 3% of the military budget and the police budget. <laughs> so, you know, there are the, – the, we have people in our country who are middle class. I mean, I'm not even talking about poor people. I'm not talking yeah. about disadvantaged. I'm talking about privileged, white, middle class Americans who cannot find a good therapist – they, yeah. they, they can't find the right therapist for them. That is a crime. That's <laughs> like, yeah. what? And a big part of that is funding. Um, then Kathleen also asks, what is the one thing you would do if you weren't afraid of anything? Berto, <laughs> what would you do? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. So on the one hand, you would think, well, if I'm not afraid of anything, I would uh, go to Mars um, well, pff, maybe you can't go to Mars because that's not an option. 
Well, or go to the moon or something. I guess I can't be an astronaut. So if it's something that I would have to be able to do uh, and not be afraid of it, um, it really would come down to uh, I would probably quit my job. I would quit my job because, you know, elevators are becoming more and more important. It's true. But the modern systems, actually those buttons last pretty long. So I would quit my job and live way, way, way under my means. Like I would simplify my life dramatically. I would probably sell this nice microphone. You wouldn't be able to podcast with me. And all I would do is practice martial arts for the rest of my life. Really? <laughs> I don't know. It's too extreme, probably. I mean, not really. Not not to that extreme. Is that a fantasy but, of yours? I mean, is this a is this a something you go to in your mind sometimes? Well, the the part that is true is that I do wish that I could be uh, financially independent, so that I could spend more time creating rather than just you know working for for a specific industry that is exciting. I mean, like you never want those buttons not to work, man. Yeah. You never do. So you, if, if you were unafraid, you'd take that leap and try well, to be, or, yeah, what's, try what's to be financially took, independent yeah. and also scale back your spending just in case that, you don't make a billion dollars from whatever idea. You have. That's right. And that's the key. Cause I actually was that brave in, in 2007 and I took that leap. I know I was, I was there. Right. It's just that I took a leap, you know, normally you're like, well, I see a square on the ground. It looks a little unstable, but I'm going to take a leap onto it. Instead, there was no square. And I'm like, I'm hoping there will be a square. Well, I'm just going to take the leap. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, obviously I don't know, but the way that I perceived it was you made a intelligent choice. You said, I want to go into business for myself and I want to yeah. create things that yeah. the market wants. And yeah. I have the background, the market is kind of wide open at this point. And I have people that I know who can help me to, you know, get there. Yeah. And I have enough funds available in my life that I, I can do this for a span of time without suffering too bad. Yeah. So it wasn't a stupid choice, and you had some success in in that it wasn't you weren't like yeah. complete um, failure, and you worked really hard, you know. And, and I worked you, really hard. Yeah, I, there were some things working against me. That they, it was right right before the big crash in two thousand eight. It was yeah. you know kind of, and there was I put trust in some people, and they really defrauded that trust. But you're right. So I can't look at. So I'm not saying it's not so much like I've I've always been afraid. It's really more about maybe having that courage again. You know, rekindling that courage. For me, I, I can't think of anything because uh, there's there's really nothing. Because I I tend to do things that make me afraid. <laughs> yeah. Like like busking at Pike Place Market or. <laughs> You know, these kinds of things. Um, doing our live show, our first right. live show, was terrifying to me. Yeah. I, I, you know, afterwards, I, if I would have known what it, what it entailed, our live show, I probably never would have signed up for it. But afterwards, I was reflecting back, and I thought, we basically designed a stand-up com- comedy show, the two of us, yeah. <laughs> and entertained people for like an hour and a half. Yeah. With lots of laughter and and information, and if someone would have said, "Yeah, Kirk, do you think you do you think it's wise that you try to, <laughs> you know, uh, 
take a dabble in stand-up comedy with your friend Umberto for an hour and a half in a bunch of in front of a bunch of strangers, I would have said no. Now a lot of you listeners were there, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Emily, Mayate, uh, who else was there that first? Well, a lot of my you know close colleagues like Aaron and Christy and Jessamy and them. Anyway. Point is, it's an amazing show, and it was one of the most memorable moments of my life. It was life. so fun to do, man. So yeah, but but you know, when I when someone asked me, you know, what what's one thing you would do if you weren't afraid of anything? The only thing that really comes to mind is like skydiving, I guess. Um, mm, but honestly, yeah. like, but honestly, if I really wanted to skydive, I'd do it. But I don't really, yeah. I don't really care to. It's not, it's not really something that I'm dying to do. You know. Well, so, and it's also weird because. The the part that is funny when you say that you're that you wouldn't be afraid of anything, because it implies that you're not doing something right now because you're afraid of it. Absolutely, and it also implies, like for example, like well, I would finally eat puffer fish or whatever that fish is that can be poisonous, right? Yeah. It's like, well, I mean, I, I guess you could call it being afraid. It's just I I just don't want to get sick and die. Like, yeah, I just <laughs> yeah right. I think you and I are not those kinds of people. Like we don't shy away from yeah. things because of fear right, right. like it we shy away of things because of of good decision making if you will yeah if anything i've if anything i'd say i i I've, there's been a little too much risk ta- risk taking in my life at times um that was a lack of wisdom so um but yeah. not but the fear wasn't there yeah i mean you know like there are a lot of people out there, if you ask them this question, and I encourage everyone listening to think about that. What's one thing you would do if you weren't afraid of anything? Right. There's a lot of people out there that'd be like, well, I'd join a band, or I'd start a podcast, or I would go to graduate school, or I would get that sweet cherry job at that elevator company. You know, these are things that you and I just do, <laughs> you know. Now, we have our other faults. Oh, but- you just hit on it, though. What? All right. Well, because you would p- probably point this out to me. All right. I'll finish my CD. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. So so that, you know, I perceive and I think you've said that the reason why you haven't finished your piano music CD is because you're afraid of failure. You're afraid of it sounding like shite because you've spent so much time on it. Yeah. But it's like, don't be afraid. Just, just you know. You don't want to die with that thing still on a master tape right. somewhere. Uh, anonymous patron asked a number of questions here that I thought I would ask you, Berto. New ideas on what to teach elementary school kids in music. So yes. this anonymous patron has a lot of music questions. So yeah. what would you teach elementary school kids? So, you know, yeah. third graders, fourth graders yeah. in music. What would you do, Berto? Okay, so... I would teach a couple things that I found as I grew up, I didn't know. But then when I learned them as an adult, basically, they were so helpful. And you could have learned them as a kid. Sorry. As a songwriter or something? Well, as a songwriter and as a person who played in bands and things like that. Yes, absolutely. So one of them is, as a kid, and I, I, I think... Maybe this is different. You know, you might go to some schools that do this in general. But if you think about it, a lot of times parents put their kids in piano lessons or violin lessons and things like this. And what they learn is they learn that instrument and they learn to sight read and it's all very valuable. And if they start early enough, oh man, they got the skills, right? No question about it. But but what's funny is that they, a lot of times I see they don't learn like the, the meta 
story, like what's going on here. They just know like the particulars of that instrument and the notes on the paper. But even easier to learn is like the like some basic chord sequences um, and the idea of chords in the first place. And that was something like when I was taking piano lessons in high school, we didn't get to chords like forever. It was when I got music theory that I started learning chords. But even then, it was like classical music theory. So the the concept of chords was all about voice leading and how do you arrange the notes. Uh, but there's so many tools that if you like study the Beatles on your own, you'll learn them implicitly, right? But you can give these things to kids. So you can be like, here, we're going to give you some general tools, how to write basic little songs. You know, there's a thing called the one chord. And it sounds like this. Ah, it's major. And then you teach them like these little basic basic building blocks and forget about the difficulty of playing the instrument just give them a one button press for the chord uh that's one thing and then the second thing that i also found really useful but i didn't learn it as a kid is rhythm just just how to have rhythm and that means like for again forget the particulars of playing the instrument you could clap you could just hit a table whatever it is but just learn different rhythms um, I happen to have good rhythm naturally somehow, but but I never really knew about rhythms until I was in college, you know? Yeah. So anyways, those yeah, are two I, things I would... Yeah, I have a similar thing, uh, but the main thing that I was thinking was just have fun with music. And you pointed out the way we typically will teach music to kids, which is lessons, which is essentially like the most boring version <laughs> of learning music. Yeah. It, for me today, ruler. Ta, ta, ta. yeah. For me today, it I wouldn't want to do that as an adult. You know, yeah. take like uh, lessons. Now there's you know there's beauty in that, and there a lot. Some sure. people love it, but the average person, including children, they just want to have fun. They just want to get into it and like make noise and express themselves. And I know that music teachers do this. I remember doing this a little bit when I was a kid in in uh, music classes. But a lot of it was that that theory stuff and and it was just it's just boring music therapists out there i know you're out there um you do this stuff all the time you just give adults older adults kids tambourines ukuleles mm. flutes and you just say okay here's the fundamentals now let's do this rhythm and just do whatever you want you know make stuff up right and to see people thrive in that space is, is just wonderful but and then you build on that right you say okay well, now that we've messed around with these, everyone has taken a turn on these 10 different instruments. Now I want, I'm going to teach you how to write a song. And yeah. you, you do that, you know. And, you know, maybe you just write a song with a drum. Like, gut, 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 gut. I love bananas. Gut, 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 gut. I love strawberries too. Gut, 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 gut. You know, like, just. Oh, you just hit it on the head. That's, I, I guess, actually, that's my new number one. Forget everything else. They don't teach you how to songwrite. Dead space, Berto. Well, you didn't react to my statement. I don't know what you're saying. What, what were you saying? They don't teach you how to songwrite. Oh, I... Th <laughs> <laughs> so, I thought you meant... My idea is, they don't teach you how to teach songwriting. Literally, like... My idea is for to not teach people to songwrite. Oh, I see. No, no, no. What I mean is, if you think about it, you learn how to play the That's piano. That's not an idea. Yeah. That was your point. You're, that wasn't My your point. idea. 
Your yeah, point was point, they don't teach you songwriting. Well, because you were, but it, I got it because you were just talking about how like, oh, and now we're gonna sound, write this song and stuff. And then I just realized that that was missing. Yeah, you don't get taught how to write a song. Right, and you know this is common for at least when we were growing up. The way education is, it's about getting in line, doing what you're told, and yeah. don't express yourself. You know, yeah. because when kids express themselves, then God knows what's going to happen. And there are certain fundamentals that you have to learn. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just falls in line. Um, next question from Anonymous Patron. How, do you, how to stop self-sabotage as a musician? How to stop self-sabotage. So I'm guessing what Anonymous Patron is, is talking about is, like, you self-sabotage with your CD with piano music. You know, you, yeah. you could say that you've... You've self-sabotaged yourself or right. you, um, I don't know, you sell your favorite guitar in a spasm of upsetness or something. <laughs> well, or you, you've pointed this out before. Like when we were working on our album, uh, the Missionary album, uh, we, I would often want to rewrite a part or rewrite the song again or, or like, you know, kind of revisit over and over. Um, and some, some of that is, is fine. It's, you know, you're editing, you're improving and stuff. But I think, uh, you had pointed out to me a few times, like that sometimes I need, you you need to be okay with moving on to the next thing, you know, and that can be another way to sabotage yourself, both in songwriting and in other kinds of art where you're just never done with the thing. Right. And you just keep going with it. So how do you stop that, Berto? I have found one tool, which is actually be less precious about everything. <laughs> because when you're, when you're starting out, and, and I say starting out, but really most of my adult life, you have this concept of like, oh, I'm going to write that hit single. This is going to be the ticket, the golden ticket. And so every song you approach it like that. Now, from the one hand, that's great because then you're hopefully going to be making better quality songs because you're really putting your all into it. But the flip side of it is you're putting so much weight on that one song. And this can be a roadblock for when I found when you're writing a book or when you're doing any sort of productive work in general, is that if you make it too precious, then, oh my gosh, you, you're scared to touch it or even work on it. Because what if it's not living up to the, the glorious dream you have of it? Whereas if it's like, okay, well, here's another song, I'm going to finish it. And then, and here's another song, or here's another chapter, or here's another thing that I'm, and they're fine. Like, I don't mean like, don't put emphasis into it or don't be meticulous and detail oriented, but just don't treat everything like it's your masterpiece and people will bow. Yeah. And this is good advice for any creative person, you know, like you're writing your book. It's a similar thing. It's like, what if my novel isn't as, you know, Pulitzer Prize worthy as I was hoping it would be? And it's like, well, if every writer thought that, there'd be nothing written down. Um, So my uh, advice to people who self-sabotage as a musician is just do it. That's kind of what Berto's saying, but a different version. And when I say just do it, I mean just stop thinking. Like, you're you're on this planet once, and like I said to Berto, do you want to die with this CD on master tape? (laughs) Uh, mm-hmm. You people out there, do you want to? Do you want to? You let you get one chance on this planet. Do you want to die having been like, well, I always wanted to do it, but I just, I don't want. You know, mm-hmm. you're you all of us right now listening, and me and Berto included. In a hundred years, we're all dead. All of us are dead 
buried under the ground, um, you know, cremated, you know, lost at sea, something. Living we're, forever as an AI, right? We're gone. And in another hundred years, anyone who remembered us, also dead and gone. No one will remember us. Nothing will matter. So what are you waiting for? <laughs> like, that's the way I always think about this stuff. It's just like, if I have one life on this planet, I'm going to fucking entertain myself. Like, it, it, this is going to be my life, and I'm not going to make sure. it anyone else's life. And if that means making a lot of mistakes, which I have done, then that's what it means. Because worst case scenario, in 200 years, whether I made a brilliant piece of art or completely mess it up, no one will remember or remember the people who remembered. So so just do it. The other thing is, is do it because you love it as a musician. A lot of people will want to get into music for other sorts of reasons. And the thing that I found, and I, this is true for you, Berto, that I observe in you, is if you love something enough, you just do it. You, 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 you know, people will say, ah, I never had the time to learn piano. I never had the time to learn, you know, guitar. Neither did I. It's not like I was, you know, just given years of free time. I didn't have time either, but I loved music and still do. Like, you know, on my left is my guitar. On my right is my keyboard. And, you know, the other day I was just like, I want to learn how to play Say Yes by Elliot Smith. And mm. I sat down and learned it. I could have, it's not like I had extra time. There's, there's always things hanging over my head. So, so the thing that I'll say is, is find what you love and do that. Don't do things that you think you're supposed to do. If you, if you think you're supposed to be like the next EDM star, because that's the sort of music you like, but your heart isn't into it, you're not going to do it. Whereas if you just like um, playing in a cover band as a second-rate drummer, then do that. Do what you love. Don't do anything else. The other thing is, is do not get bogged down in gear. This is a problem for a lot of musicians, you included, Berto. I'm raising my hand on this one. <laughs> Getting bogged down in gear, like where there's been, and I am guilty of it at times as well, where it's like, if I only had that one piece of gear, then I could really be creative. And so I'm saving up to get that piece of gear. I've been recording music since I was 16, 17 years old. And when I first started recording, I had a $100 computer that, or $100 um, guitar that I bought from an army surplus store. And I had two boom boxes. Yeah. And I had a Casio uh, sampling keyboard that was like the size of a, of a big phone, essentially. And I wrote some beautiful songs back then, and I had no gear. <laughs> um, everyone has a billion times more gear on their iPhone right now. So you don't need the gear. Now, gear can help, but don't wait. Just create. The other thing is, is work with other people. Because for me, when, my best moments in music have been working with other people. Yeah. There's something well, about... I'd say that one, yeah. There's something about, like... It's greater than the sum of its parts. Like when you yep. bring people together, it gives it energy and more creativity and motivation and a responsibility to the team. You know, you, like yep. you like if it's just you, you're like, well, I got other things to do. 
if people depend on you, you got to show up to band practice, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's and I, I'd, I'd add to that to say, don't sell yourself short, meaning find people that are not only willing to play with you that you want to play with, but actually people that can, that are better than you at stuff, at some stuff, or, you know, that you compliment each other. Don't like, don't just find people that are sort of like willing to go along with it because that won't push you. Um, as an example, I think like when you and I were playing together, it really pushed me because it wasn't, you weren't just like some like for hire guitarist that joined my band and you're kind of like rolling your eyes as you're playing my music and you were in it. You were writing your own songs too and we're both like playing each other's songs and we liked figuring out what harmonies we were going to do and then we recorded that CD and that really pushed me. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think, in fact, I know I wouldn't have had an album done if it had been just me. Uh, you would have, cause you would have, but I wouldn't have. <laughs> and that, that was really important. But it was not just that I was doing it with someone else. I was doing it with someone else that, that, was, uh, that I could learn from, not just someone yeah. that I could tell what to do. I will say those are rare relationships. I, I've had you know just three or four relationships like the one you yeah. and I had. Um, it's hard to find people who are similarly um, sort of motivated and, and matched up for that. The last advice I have to combat uh, self-sabotage is find your voice. So for me, I didn't really know what my voice was when I first started working in music. I, I wanted to be famous when I was a teenager. And so I was looking to uh, figure out what was popular and what I could do within popular music. And at times that was okay and other times it was disastrous particularly when we went into the grunge years which my voice is not geared towards <laughs> grunge music but there's a whole couple of years of songs that I wrote during that time that are just awful they're, just, they're terrible songs and I thought they were good and I was basically trying to write Pearl Jam songs and or Nirvana songs um, sure. my, my Smashing Pumpkins style songs were actually okay but my Pearl Jam and Nirvana songs particularly my Pearl Jam songs were terrible and later on, actually, when I discovered Elliot Smith in the in the mid '90s, was when I was like, "Oh, wait! So I can be soft and subtle, <laughs> and along those lines, like, oh, okay, I think I'll do that." Or like stuff like the Strokes is is more kind of subtle as well. Anyway, the point is, is that when you find your voice, one, you just feel more in the groove. But two, you don't feel like you're grading up against a style that you're trying to be that isn't really you. And just be yourself. And if people don't like it, screw them. But they probably will. If you find, if you find who you are as a musician or an artist of any kind, and you do that because it's in your bones and it fits who you are and your personality then people will like it a lot more than if you're trying to act like something else. Yeah, I think finding your voice is super important. There's no question about it. Mickey Mouse, um, be quiet. <laughs> no, but listen, in all seriousness, I think... Well, and, and you can, like, the voice part, it, it can apply in different ways. For example, you may find that what you're really good at and what you enjoy doing is writing very... Uh, very poppy songs for other people to sing or something like there are people that are that's their talent you know they come up with what they get paid you know how, you know most of us are like oh maybe i could write a song that could maybe someday be a hit single these people write hit singles for breakfast 
and they get paid because it's a guarantee like hey listen we need we have a movie coming out in that movie there needs to be a song in the middle of the movie that's got to sound like an absolute pop single uh we need you to write it oh sure yeah i charge the standard amount because that's what i do that's my voice and that's what they do um so your voice doesn't have to be like uh, a Bob Dylan voice or this and that. And it doesn't even have to be that you are the best guitarist or the best pianist. Or the, but finding what it is that you're both, you know, like good at and enjoy, that is key. And I totally agree with that. I've, I've definitely been tricked many times in my past where, uh, you know, I have this friend that would always point out like how there was this other music that he liked. And I would, I would be like trying to impress him so i'm like all right well i'm gonna try to write music like that man that never works out <laughs> never works out um so yeah i think that t- couldn't agree more try to find your voice last question from anonymous patron along these lines is anything interesting new about the music scene where you live berto what do you think <laughs> i live in my house yeah the new music scene is whatever music i'm recording no but honestly even before this pandemic i am so out of the touch i'm I'm so out of the touch that i don't even know the saying yeah that's how so so out of the touch i am i'm more into the touch than you are berto um (laughs) uh, before the virus particularly like up until a few years ago i went out all the time and went to uh, went to a lot of because there's so many music venues in seattle i mean one of the one of my favorite things to do would be just like okay friday night um, I'm just going to go out by myself. I'm just going to go. Yeah. I'm going to go to five different clubs. I'm going to go to Crocodile, Rendezvous, you know, all the different places in Belltown, or I'm going to go on Capitol Hill or whatever. And I just love because there is so much good music in Seattle. I mean, it's just amazing these the the variety and the the personalities that you see. Um, so the things that, from my perspective, what I saw in Seattle is that. Alternative rock, you know, whatever you want to call it, is still thriving in Seattle. There is a lot of what I would characterize as alternative rock. There's a lot of alternative hip-hop as well. There's a lot of um, underground EDM, alternative. Mm. Every, basically, everything in Seattle is alternative. We got, you, got, alternative. You, got, you, got, you got some alternative country, alternative EDM, alternative rock. Um, but uh, so in Seattle, because... The um, music scene in Seattle was discovered by the world, you know, with Nirvana and everyone else. And so there's a lot of really big bands that came out of Seattle, Soundgarden, these other kind of acts. But and then there was um, Death Cab for Cutie and, you know, Postal Service, these kinds of bands. But then everything kind of died off there. A band of horses was was kind of big for a while. Um, but in the past 10, 15 years, there really hasn't been a, a, a big Seattle act other than, like, um, what's her face? Carlisle. What's her name? Um, but anyway, Seattle now has gone back, in my estimation, to the way it was in the 80s. Mm. But there's a lot more venues. Like, in the 80s, no one respected local music. But today in I Seattle, see. there's a lot of respect for local music. But it's but and and the the vibe of local music is none of us are going to make it. You know what I mean? We don't live in L.A., we don't live in London, we don't live in New York, and so people are seemingly expressing who they are without trying to be something else. You know, right. which ends up being really cool. 
Um, That's awesome. The other thing that I'm seeing is a lot of good cover bands. You know, uh, in the 90s when uh, I would go out and see a lot of music back then, I remember like cover bands were like it was old people playing <laughs> funk music or something, you know, like 60s music. And there were some good, there were some famous cover bands in Seattle back then. But but I remember I think maybe 15 years ago, 10, 10 15 years ago, I went to L.A., and I went to the Rainbow Room, which is a famous place, and they they have oh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. they have a venue like upstairs, and and in this tiny little room, I saw the best Led Zeppelin cover band I've ever seen in my life. What? This and there were two people watching them, and I thought like L.A. has such a uh, you know robust uh, talent source that oh man these four guys are playing. Led Zeppelin perfectly, and they look good too. Like they had, you wow. know, the lead singer looked like a real rock star in, in, all, in all the ways that you would imagine. And two people were watching, and I just thought, man, LA is different from <laughs> Seattle because Seattle would not have this sort of band, right? Right. Um, and but I think that's starting to happen in Seattle. I think there there are more of those kinds of really really awesome cover bands. And my band was along those lines. Like, we became a very good, in my estimation, Strokes cover band and really dedicated ourselves to playing just the Strokes, you know? Yeah. And um, you guys sounded great. At times. I think I was the worst. <laughs> I think I was the worst part of the... I was you the, had some very strong uh, musicians in that band. Man. Yeah, I was, was like the... like a super band. I was the weakest link. <laughs> you um, did great. I really enjoyed your shows. Oh, Thanks. <laughs> And then, of course, we have the Black Tones, which is a friend of mine. If you, if you want to Google them, uh, Black Tones from Seattle. Uh, friends of mine in the band, particularly Cedric, the drummer. He, he's a really good friend of mine. And they are up and coming, or they're, they've already arrived in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, they, they recently did a show with Dave Matthews and Macklemore and stuff as a Seattle yeah. COVID um, you know, kind of thing. And so... So that you know, there, so I'll mention them, but I will say that there's just a lot of alternative music in Seattle, um, and I love it all. I, f- I think it's yeah. it's it just feels Seattle to me. It's just it, all the even the alternative country just feels very Seattle to me. Yeah, it definitely feels healthier right now than because uh, the last time I was really playing out a lot it was all the way back in 2005. I was playing, I think I've mentioned to you, I was playing three, sometimes four shows a week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, traveling. You had a, you had all a customized band van. Yeah, yeah. We were going all the way down to Olympia and Portland and all the do way Do you still have to, that van, by the way? Uh, Be- Be- Bellingham. Yeah, I still do. It's collecting rust. I really need to uh, fix it. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the, at the time, bands, I, 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 I got this feeling like, we were treated fairly poorly. And I just thought, I mean, I just felt like bands were like a dime a dozen. I was like, yeah, yeah sure, you can play. And I didn't like you, see a like lot you had of... To, like, I, I played in bands back then, too. And you really had yeah. to beg people to yeah, let you play exactly. there. Yeah, it's not that yeah. way in, so much anymore. And there was a ton of... Most of the bands, like, we were we stuck out a little bit because we were writing sort of more traditional songs. And a lot of the bands were metal bands. There was a lot of metal at the time. Right. Yeah, so let's take a break. and we get back, let's continue with emails for you and me, Roto. What do you say? Let's do it. 
All right, Berto, if an early 90s grunge band were to ask everyone to become a patron of the podcast, what would that sound like? An early 90s grunge band. Uh, okay, it'd be like, so um, thank you for uh, like listening to us or whatever. But um, I don't know, man. Like, If you feel like it, you might... You could become a patron, but I, I don't want to tell you what to do because, like, you know, F the system. So, actually, you probably don't want to do it. Honestly, we suck. You know, like, everything we do sucks. But that's life, man. Life just sucks. So, whatevs. <laughs> but they say whatevs. They probably wouldn't say whatevs. No, that's that's a word. They, they would say whatever for, <laughs> whatever. for sure. Whatever. Uh, patron okay. Elena from London, she says she wants to... She asks us, what are our favorite podcasts? And, of course, whenever we get asked this question, I always have to say, for you, Berto, maybe YouTube channels. YouTube channels. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, so my tastes have changed a bit in, in the last bit of time. Uh, I will still mention uh, uh, Philip DeFranco, uh, SXE Phil. Just, he, for years, I listened to him constantly. Recently, not as much. Nothing he's doing differently. Just I've been into different things recently. Um, so I've been, uh, watching a ton of videos on writing and how to write and how to create characters and how to create story, a ton of, uh, channels that are, some of them are actual writers. Some of them are public or like agents, like literary agents. Uh, and some of them are teachers, like they teach in famous universities in California and stuff like this. Just, I'm addicted to those. Um, and the other stuff that is sort of evergreen for me is anything that's math or science related. So, you know, um, 60 symbols is constant channel for me. Um, the, there's one that is, uh, uh, what's it called? Oh man, I'm spacing, but it's, uh, Veritasium, Veritasium. Yeah. Veritasium, Veritasium. Veritasium. Yeah. That one's really good. Yeah. I love And, um, and then I really love watching debates for some reason. Well, you could probably imagine because I like, talking and so i like hearing people talk but i love debates debates on religion debates on uh economics and stuff like this for a while i was really addicted to listening to all of the bible analysis the jordan peterson bible analysis um because i was just like i am i just wanted to hear what all the connections he was making uh because in spite of how i feel about it and how i feel about him like he he was He's very literary about that aspect. So, um, of course, he had some health problems and stuff, so he hasn't been posting anything in, in quite a while. Jordan Peterson? Um, Jordan Peterson, yeah. He Has health severe, problems? Oh, yeah. He, had a, he was addicted to, um, to benzos, I guess, or whatever. And he really? Near, nearly died. He had to go to Russia for some detox program. And he's been just recently came back into the... Into the you know, he did a video with his daughter talking about it and stuff. Huh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, his wife was sick, too. Wasn't his wife sick or something? Anyway. Oh, yeah. His wife. That's kind of one of the reasons he got into these problems is because he was dealing with his wife's illness and getting really depressed and, and all these kinds of things. Yeah. It's really interesting because, well... Uh, anyway, so so there's that. And then I, I always li like listening to some news stuff like the Young Turks and uh, David Pakman show, uh, uh, Rachel Maddow, those kinds of things. 
For me, uh, I actually will provide podcasts, which are available on your phone, right? Uh, my favorite is currently is the Anthropocene Reviewed, which you might know from uh, YouTube as John Green, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the Green Brothers. Yeah. Uh, and this is just amazing podcasting. Uh, essentially what he does is, and it's scripted, you could, but he reads it very fluidly. It's not just him rambling like you and me. <laughs> he is. He writes because he he's an excellent writer, and he writes this all out. And he'll he always reviews two things every episode. It's like you know twenty minutes episode. So it, he's he's like Yelp reviewing things in society. Like he wow. will re, he'll review hot dogs or or uh, politics or the uh, ozone layer or um, or. COVID, you know, he'll 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 rate that on a scale from one to five, and he'll talk about it. But he the I I can't do it justice. The way he weaves in things, I mean, I've cried, I've laughed. I mean, I mean, it's wow. just so amazing the way that he talks about things, and he and he self discloses a lot. It's it's really amazing. I have to listen to this. Yeah, Anthropocene reviewed. Highly recommend. Dan Carlin, his history podcast. I always talk about that. He really goes into you know history a lot. Just love that. Um, TBTL, Too Beautiful to Live, which is just two guys talking in Seattle. I, I've always loved that um, podcast. I've talked about Friendly Fire, which is three guys in in Seattle, uh, or at least two of them are in Seattle, talking about war movies. I, I've started. I really uh, have fallen in love with that podcast. Wow. The, the Conan the Conan O'Brien podcast is. Amazing. Not every episode is amazing, but it is. Conan O'Brien is. Uh, I, I love him so much now that I bought a, I bought a, uh, a Lego figure of him that's behind me. What? Right now. That's yeah. awesome. I mean, he is just a national treasure. He's just so great. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, the podcast Heavyweight with um, Jonathan Goldstein. Which, uh, if you're familiar with him from um, This American Life, it's an amazing podcast. Reply All, which is a pretty popular podcast where they do a lot of tech stuff, um, but they do it in this really hilarious way. Like one episode, they um, so these two guys, and one of the guys decides, okay, I'm going to try to hack into the other guy's phone. So then he goes on this journey where he starts talking to hackers about how do I hack into my friend's phone? And then he proceeds to do it. And then he will show him his results later on and be like, okay, so I'm, so I've been working on this project and I've been, I've been, I hacked into your phone like a month ago and I've been recording, I've been recording everything you've been doing. And then they proceed to talk about like, how do you hack into a phone? How do you protect yourself from that? And all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which is one of the very first podcasts I ever listened to and, and really was a major motivation for me to becoming a podcaster, was listening to that in 2006. I, I, I just realized I did a disservice to – I really want to call out some specific channels that I subscribe to. I, I mentioned a couple, but I, I, I do want to mention a couple more. Um, so there's one called Davey504. Have you watched this guy? No. He is an amazing bass player. But his channel is all like this joke channel where he's always, uh, you know, 
poo-pooing everyone else and insulting people. And he has all these fights he gets into with other musicians and stuff. But then whenever he plays bass, like he's an amazing bassist, an amazing musician. It's really funny. Um, then Two Set Violin, another music channel, these two um, Asians, I think they're Korean, and they're amazing violinists. And they actually got into a back and forth with this Davey 504 guy because the Davey 504 guy put down the violin and then these guys are like, oh, that won't stand. And so they went back and forth in a few videos. Um, I also listened to, um, so I was talking about books and stuff, but I also listened to MMA stuff. So the one that's called MMA World, where I watch all the highlights from MMA fights and, and things like that. Um, Computer File, which is like Number File, which I also listen to. I love the Screen Rant channel, especially the uh, any uh, any of them that are the uh, the pitch the pitch ones, um, where yeah. it's like he's pitching like here's how you, you know I've got this new movie for you. It's just so great. I mentioned sixty symbols. I forgot to mention number five, but I just did. Um, then there's this writer advice person named K M Wayland or Wyland. She's this gal. And she's got this channel. It doesn't have a lot of views for some reason, but her advice and advice on characters and structure is just so amazing. Love it, love it. Um, and last couple, um, there's one called Dr. Mix. Have you oh, seen yeah. this one? Yeah. I love Dr. Mix. I think you you might have been the one to point me to it. Yeah. Because you Doc, sent Dr. me a couple Mix of things. Is, I think he's like maybe Dutch or German or something. And, yeah. And he... He is a master uh, studio music producer, and yes. and he's got a wonderful personality. Yes. And he'll, like, uh, I might have sent you this one where he recreated the Knight Rider theme song. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so that's great. And then I got some on comics, variant comics. Um, I I mentioned, you mentioned John Green, the, the Vlogbrothers. I've been, I've. I don't know, 12 years on that channel or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something crazy. So, yeah, and then I have some vegan stuff and whatnot. But I probably have – I didn't realize just how many subscriptions I have. I've got yeah, yeah. too many <laughs> Yeah, I was just looking at my YouTube. I, just curious, too. I, I have, like, hundreds wow. of subscriptions yeah, on YouTube. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Debbie sent in a article months and months ago and wanted us to talk about it. So I'm just going to read highlights from this article. Uh, this is called the title of this article is called Massachusetts serial pooper busted for defecating in parking lot eight times <laughs> by Natalie O'Neill. So I'm just going to read some export, uh, excerpts here. A Massachusetts woman was busted for allegedly turning a store parking lot into her own personal potty, pooping there a staggering eight times in roughly a month. Dubbed the parking lot pooper, Andrea Grocer. 51, of Ashland, was allegedly caught dropping trow near the Natick Outdoor Store. Quote, At first, workers thought it was an animal, but then they noticed toilet paper and other wipes. When confronted, she told the officer she she had irritable bowel syndrome and was on her way to her job as a nanny. The cop pointed out that there were plenty of public restrooms nearby. The officer also called her employer, who confirmed she could have just pooped at the at their house, so where she was nannying. She was charged with wanton destru- destruction of property and released without bail. Berto, what do you think about this story? Wow. Well, I mean, I guess it's the repeat part that... Because, you know, there, there are people with IBS, and that can be a real emergency. Although I would imagine you would try to find... 
a more hidden place or something. But um, man, I I mean, I know I know what it feels like when you gotta go, you gotta go, you know. Has that ever happened to you before? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like um, I think I've told this story. Like we've said before, I'm sure I've told this story. Uh, I was in high school and I had a cross country match. It was a three mile run, and it was like you know right after school or whatever. Oh God. And so I decided that it was a great idea to go to the 7-Eleven and buy a 12-inch hoagie sandwich basically an hour before the run. (laughs) And I ate this humongous, again, 12-inch, with like the salamis and the cheeses and the sauce that was slightly spicy and stuff. And I just crammed this whole thing down my gullet. And then I started running. Oh, my God, dude. I think I ran probably 250 yards and my stomach all of a sudden started going and i was like oh god i gotta go right now and you know when you're running you're wearing these teeny little shorts and stuff so i'm like i i'm screwed like what am i gonna do i I mean i feel like i need to go literally the second so what i did is I dashed off the route. Everyone's running. We're just start at the start of the race. So everyone's going super fast and everyone's together. And I dashed dart off to the side and like my, my teammates are like, where are you going? I'm like, I, I got to do something. And I go into the bushes up the hill as far as I could get, just in the middle of the bushes. And I crouch down and I just got to let it all, let it all go. And it was so bad. And I had to sit there. I was stuck. I'm wearing like, I have no toilet paper. I have nothing. And it's like bad. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my little blue teeny shorts around my ankles. And I'm like, dude, sock. In the bushes. Dude, And sock. I'm like, what? I should have thought of the socks, dude. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, what am I going to do? So what I ended up doing is we were luckily running around a lake when everyone had passed and I waited. But I probably waited there, honestly, like half an hour or something. Or I don't know. It felt like half an hour. It was probably 10 minutes. But I crept as quickly as I could down the bushes and made a dash for the lake and I just went into the lake and I just was in the lake for like 10 minutes with all your clothes yeah well with my running gear you know what was your were your your shorts at your knees or were they up no I mean I pulled them up so they sure they got soiled in the process and what do you what'd you tell people when you got to the finish line oh where were you what happened to you I'm like oh I just didn't feel good. I had to jump into the lake. I felt it was heat exhaustion. And luckily no one, maybe someone knew, but no one was like, what are you talking about, Mr. Poopy Pants? Oh, God, that's great. Oh, it was so embarrassing. So oh. so this yeah. is a thing, and Debbie, I think, sent this in because there are a lot of these stories of people who will repeatedly poop in public and get caught. There's There was a principal a couple years ago who got caught pooping at a rival school's track because he would run around the other school's track in the morning before school. Oh my and gosh. I think every day, not just every once in a while, every day, oh my God. he would go number two, like, you know, on the field somewhere. And that's all sorts of wrong. <laughs> so there's all these questions as to like, well, why is this? And the answer I'll say, the short answer is it's impossible to know without assessing them. And I obviously, well, not obviously, but I don't specialize in this kind of client. So I, I don't really know. And I haven't looked up the risk, the, uh, the research, but I will say that uh, there are things that come to mind that are speculative is that 
they get a physical and or emotional pleasure from pooping in public. And this is somewhat normal in that it just feels good to poop, right? I mean, let's yeah. all admit it. It's like, you know, when it's it there it makes sense that we would have an emotional uh evolutionary thing of yeah. uh, it you you have build up and it you feels get bad it out. and then when you get it out, your your brain rewards you with all these endorphins of like, good job, you just did something <laughs> you're supposed to do. In the same way that when you eat something, you also get a euphoric feeling as well. Can you imagine if pooping felt as good as having an orgasm? <laughs> I think for some people it does. And and that's my point. Is like for some people I think oh, it I feels <laughs> so good that they Oh, oh here it comes. Oh, yeah. Oh. And as with sexual activity, some people have fetishes about right. doing it in, in public and so uh, you know, almost getting caught or the exhibitionist nature of it. Yeah. And so uh so I think it is uh definitely possible that some of these people um have a condition, a fetish of getting sexual pleasure or something like that. Um, another possibility is that these people have issues with their personality, maybe passive aggressive personality, and they feel a compulsion to get back at other people in a pathological manner, which can manifest in a lot of behaviors, including taking a crap in, in someone's yard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure. I mean, there are people that do all sorts of things passively as a way of getting, you know, a lot of people have aggression going on. And if you don't feel like you can express that in a healthy way, then, you know, you'll do it in a hidden way. And sure. of the million different hidden ways you can express aggression, pooping is one. Um, another possibility is that for some people, they might only be able to go in certain situations in the wow. same way that some people might only be able to go number two in their own house and in, in their own toilet. Yeah. Some people might only be able to go in nature because your body might just sort of associate. If you start a habit of going to the bathroom every day at 730 when you're at this particular spot, then your body might just be like, well, this is where we go. Because your body doesn't yeah. know it's wrong and against the law. It's just like, well, this is where we go. <laughs> right. And the person might at home be trying to go, but then they're just like, uh, it's not happening. I, I have to go on my run to kind of jog it loose, if you will. Um, and, and there you go. Um Another possibility is that some people just have actual beef. You know, they like they just they're just angry in that passive aggressive way. Another is is mental illness. I mean, you could be psychotic. You could be you could suffer from dementia, uh, schizophrenia, and you know it, I've never heard of it before, but I can imagine psychosis manifesting in like, well, I have to go poop in this parking lot or else the aliens are going to get me. That kind of thing. Ooh, I so see. those like, are like the the probe the probes in my butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sort of uh, different. Um, so that is my speculation to that, and I find that a lot of people when they talk about these stories in the news, there's a there's a lot of bewilderment. You know, it's like, well, mm. why would someone do that? Is is it just like bad behavior? I think a lot of people will frame it as if it's like littering. Like you know how some mm. people litter. It's like, oh come on, you people. Litter in public. You yeah, you should. But I, I, I think there's something more going on with yeah. some of these people. Um, upper tier patron Kathleen always has great questions for us, and she asks: After waking up your phone, after no, she has a hypothetical. After waking up, your phone sends you an alert that due to a massive meteorite, the world is going to end in 12 hours. What do you do? So you wake up in the morning, 
your phone sends you what like an amber <sighs> alert you know i don't know what sort of yeah. type of alert it would be it says a meteorite is a meteor a, you know asteroid is going to blow up the planet you got 12 hours what do you do brito hmm. well after probably throwing up a bit <laughs> uh double checking that it's not spam <laughs> uh man that's not happy i mean i would just spend it with my closest ones i'd get on video calls right away uh maybe try to do a huge group call with my family reminisce play some music drink heavily and then uh wait for the end again wait for the end yeah when i when she music at at first when mine is exactly like yours just identical i hope maybe we'd be in the same room honestly i I would hope we'd be in the call because you have to say goodbye to my family in colombia too yeah (laughs) and i should say bye to your family and the uh, when i first read this question i was like oh it's one of those thought experiments but with covid going on it kind of hits home you know yes it does it kind of hits home the only thing i would add which was the very first thing I thought of was eat all the food I, I like to eat. <laughs> sure. Uh, patron Cody from England, she writes, I'm really interested in how people respond to fictional characters. I've noticed a lot of people, usually men, get angry at the idea that Ben, Slo- that ben Solo could have lived and sought atonement at the end of The Rise of Skywalker because he deserved to suffer and or die. That's bullshit. <laughs> And I've also seen a lot of men want Kylo to be more evil and mock people who feel sorry. You know, they've seen people who mock people who feel sorry for him or who relate to him in any way. I was wondering what your thoughts were on this. So basically, oh. if you're not aware of this, Berto and I are very aware of this, is that there are people online that get really angry about certain uh, – not only just movies in the way they depict your favorite character, but in the way people talk about it. So when – when I don't know if it was after episode seven or eight in Star Wars, people were starting to talk about how ooh, may, you know, there's all this fan fiction about Ray and Kylo. If you're not aware of Star Wars, you know like, how angry I get over over Rayla. Yeah, it's just like the good guy and the bad guy, uh, the good girl and the bad guy in the movie. They there was speculation that maybe they would fall in love and actually get married, or they'd have some sort of romance. And essentially, it'd be like if you know if if Darth Vader and well, you can't say Princess Leia because that's his daughter. But or what's another one? If if um, if Voldemort and uh, Hermione, that would be that'd be a pretty good. Dude, uh, it's it's worse. It's like if Hitler and Anne Frank get together. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. So uh, so some people will just throw that out there as like, oh, I wonder if that would happen. And then and then. Other people will get I real mean, angry and say, "Like, I, you are an idiot. Yeah. You, you don't deserve oh. to be on the internet. You're a terrible human being." And so, patron Cody from England is going, "What's up with those people, Berto? What's up so, with you?" I'm one of those people. I mean, maybe not to that extreme, but listen, you got to understand. For some of us, as I've talked about before, Star Wars wasn't just this one movie I saw when I was a kid or something. It was my reality for years. It was what I thought of when I thought of the future and fun and sci-fi and toys. It was just like everything to me. So, you know, then I grow up and I go to see a movie and it there's like poo-poos on my thing that I love. So I'm going to get a little, but, but the Rilo, the Raylo thing was a little bit 
it, there was additional components to it because frankly i don't care about those characters in 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 the context of the old movies i love they're new characters so fine i, I i'm open to where the narration is going to take us what i was so upset about was that the the place that people would go to is like oh of course this strong independent woman should fall for this mass murdering misaja and like like organism gistic like nihilistic monster so i think most people would you know relate on some level not maybe to this specific but but why so angry why that's what so she's serious? that's what she's asking is just like People are just talking on the internet. Like, why? Like, you know that there's a lot of dudes on the internet that will go ballistic. Yeah. Like, they might yeah. dox someone because of this yeah. sort of thing. Okay, that 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 is that is an extreme. Um, I will agree. I think because those folk don't have a lot of things that are maybe as real feeling, and so these things feel like the most real things, and so they put the kind of they put the kind of energy into these causes that at different times they might have put into fighting a war for freedom. Because if you think about it, they're probably the same age range of the types of people that would have fought in the wars. Uh, so when you read, watch Hamilton or read about the, the founding fathers, you're like, man, they, they're like, oh, we're going to liberate our country and we're going we're gonna to stand up to these British people. That's how angry they were. They were going crazy. It's just that they were doing it for something that in retrospect, we're like, well, that's a worthy cause. But in this case, these people don't have those worthy causes. And instead, they're, they still have these intense inner feelings about like fighting for something. And so then this becomes their reality. And they're like, oh, I will die on a hill uh, if you do this to my beloved uh, Kylo, which I don't even care about because these movies are garbage. <laughs> uh, that is as good an answer as any, and I will stand by it as a speculation. Um, now, I will say that I can kind of relate because when I saw episode nine, The Rise of Skywalker, I felt like one of those dudes, man. I was I was just disgusted with what I was watching. And I was in the minority, like even yeah. even even with you, Berto. I, yeah, I, I just I you were was, even further off. the. the yeah. yeah, I mean, pretty much uh, maybe 25 minutes into the movie, I was like. This movie is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, and it just got dumber and dumber and dumber in my eyes. Uh, Patron Garvey from Canada, she writes, I have a question for Berto. I recently heard on one of your podcasts that Umberto moved to the United States when he was 15 years old. I moved from Brazil to Canada when I was 16, so I was interested to know what his experience was like. I was very shy all my life. But moving here at the age made me feel very isolated, like like I was a weirdo. I was also bullied and ridiculed in high school because I didn't speak English. I'm 28 years old now, and I got over some of those feelings, but it was a very traumatic experience for me. What was it like for you, Birdo? Oh, man, I am so sorry to hear that. That is That is really unfortunate. And it's like, I know it's stereotypical, but it's not the image I have of Canada. You know, they seem so nice. Well, I have to say I actually got really lucky because, if anything, the environment that I was in in Colombia was really heading in a wrong direction. For one thing, um, the violence that, w that we were experiencing as a society was ridiculous, daily, constant, terrible. Second, I went to a school full of kind of entitled kids that were part of the elite, you know. I wasn't one of them, but most of them were. 
Um, and there was bullying at my school. And I saw, I saw like one of my classmates who was, who was a bigger kid in our class, but two years older kids bullied him really badly. And for no reason that I could see, which is usually the case, um, there, you know, I remember one time I had to basically at the end of the day, at the end of one of the semesters, run away constantly that afternoon because they were giving wedgies. They were handing wedgies out to kids, you know, and I didn't want to get a freaking wedgie. So I was just like avoiding. Uh, when I moved up here, I was expecting karate kid, you know, like I would move up here and essentially a gang of, you know, 20 foot tall gringos would accost me constantly. And I would have to give them my lunch money because I had seen all the movies. Um, I got lucky. I didn't. And I, I made friends really, really early uh, that were good friends. Uh, I was in classes with people that on the surface should have bullied me. <laughs> you know, like there was, there was this one physics class I was in, although I guess it's a physics class, but you know, they were one grade ahead of me, both of them in the football team. One of them, this, this huge white dude, like, and, and not only big, but when you would feel his arm, don't ask me why I was feeling his arm, but when you would feel his arm, it was like iron, you know, like there was no give to his skin. Um, and then, you know, I remember like one of the first days in that class, he's like, oh, so you're Colombian, hey? Oh, Pablo Escobar, drugs. And, and the thing is, I was like, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, since there was nowhere else for him to take the joke, he was like, oh, that's cool, man. And then, you know, he just never like bullied me or anything. Um, I just got lucky. I honestly just got lucky. But I was well, told you say that lucky, but uh, I think also you are just uniquely prepared to uh, um, deal with bullies and to take Could the wind be, yeah. out of their sails. Yeah, uh, you. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you had a shred of your social skill in that area, but particularly as yeah. you do now, I'm sure that. Um, you easily could have been bullied if you didn't have that skill. I don't know where you got yeah. that skill, but but you it's, you there because I've seen because I've seen people bully you as an adult, yeah. and you will easily just judo that stuff and take yeah. all the power out of it, and then it's just yeah. it's just gone, you know. And then you That's turn it around. A really good question. I don't know where I got it because it's not my dad. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was circumstantial, like all the little inputs into my young system ended up giving me tools that, but, but so in, so you're right. It's not just luck. I, well, it's lucky in that I had those tools, but I also wasn't, uh, I wasn't put it, look, if I had grown up in New York the whole time, I think it would have been really bad because as a child there, I was already experiencing, you know, I was sexually molested. I was being bullied by a seven-year-old in that, meaning a two-year-older kid in my school uh, being bullied severely. I was thrown down a flight of stairs by this kid. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Like I was at an ice cream shop and like some teenagers knocked ice cream off my hands and stuff. Like these were the experiences I was having. Oh, I, and I also, I would, uh, I was dropped off by my, the mom that was babysitting me, dropped me off upstairs, two floors upstairs into a different family's house without my dad knowing because years later when I was like, Hey, do you remember that family with that one kid? And he's like, no. Like, oh, but I would get dropped off there. Quite, I was like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> it was like, what? And that kid was two years older too. And he wasn't exactly bullying me, but he was, he was sort of bullying me. He, like he would, he would tell me st stuff that was 
higher than my age range and like also weird things like he would be like oh where do you take girls at your school to go make out with them and stuff like that and i was five and i'm like wait what are you talking anyways it's weird stuff was happening already and that was at the age of five so i think if i had stayed in new york my life would have turned out quite differently when i went back to columbia even in spite of all the things i had a lot of family around me so so things were fairly good in that sense and then when i moved to tacoma to live with my mom in spite of it being apparently a dangerous area at the time and my high school was known for for bad things apparently i i overall had a really good experience i got in with good friends a lot of them asian and uh you know i just yeah, I think another difference between you and Patreon Garby is that you spoke English. Oh, and I spoke English, of course. Yeah. I did. Yeah, this is something that I find uh, to be, you know, for those of you who watch my reaction videos, uh, Stephanie on 90 Day Fiance, early in her life, she came from the Czech Republic to the United States and uh, looked like maybe eight or nine years old and didn't speak any English for a couple of years. And they just throw her into school. And I find this behavior to just be ridiculous. I mean, for kids to just move to another school uh, in their city is traumatic. To move to another country and to not speak the language, I mean, what's the wisdom behind that? You know, I'm sure they think, well, you know, you just got to immerse the people into the language. Okay, to learn English, but what about the emotional trauma of being eight years Oof. old and sitting in a class, or 15 for that matter, and sitting in a class, looking around, you don't understand anything that's happening. People are looking at you like you're a weirdo, like, who, <laughs> who is this person? And the teacher has to deal with you. I mean, is a te- does anyone, does any teacher yeah. want to have a... A kid in the class that can't that they can't communicate oh, with. That's I mean, so hard. what is the wisdom behind it? It's just so stupid, so dumb. And and I have talked with so many clients about this issue. Yeah. Uh, whether it's this kind of scenario or it's a private school scenario, like a boarding school scenario, so many people have a lifetime of trauma to work through when these things happen and we just think of it like well this is what you do you know hey yeah 16 years old send them to school full immersion yeah that's what you know what other option do we have well send them to school uh yeah. well boarding school that'll be great for kids you know they <laughs> they love that you know it'll be a good chance for them to get to know other people that this yeah. sort of thing and uh and people just and you and even when they hear about horrific things they're having, well, you know, kids are kids, you know, <laughs> you know, things happen because in this we have this weird thing in our society and I think societies all over the world of just like, yeah, you know, stuff happens when you're young, you'll get over it, but that's because yeah. most people have a few negative experiences and they do get over it, and in their small pea-sized brain they can't imagine that maybe your experience growing up isn't the only way that people experience growing up you know i i have a theory dude i have a theory that a lot of the world's problems in in all joking aside a lot of the world's problems are triggered because the people in charge at the oligarchy level at the very powerful levels a lot of those were raised by by boarding schools oh yeah and not by loving parents oh yeah i mean not necessarily boarding schools but like the this goes all the way back to when john bowlby the founder of attachment theory uh he 
he came from a rich family and he was raised by, you know, governesses, Tutors, and nannies yeah. and yeah. went to boarding school and um, and the nannies would sort of come in and out of his life. And one of yeah. the biggest traumatic experiences of his life was when I can't remember the exact detail, but he was young, like five years oldish. And one of his nannies uh, was fired or moved on in life or something. And he was completely devastated by that because we consider high class to be nanny life. High class is boarding school. High class means as a parent, you don't have to get down on the ground and take care of the kids. Right. Um, not only, you know, these high power, uh, you know, CEOs and stuff, but the royal family in Britain, yeah. uh, they have a long right. tradition of of doing this to kids. You know, you watch The Crown and they depict this pretty well of Charles and all the other kids of, of Queen Elizabeth. They are, uh, you know, seen, barely seen and not heard as children. <laughs> and because the queen and king, they got stuff to do. You know, they, they don't, they don't, do. they, they don't have time to, to play with children during the day. A hundred percent agree. I mean, obviously not everyone, but it is a yeah. rampant problem. And ironically, if you're super poor and you can't get a job, you're at home with your kids all day. And guess who develops well? <laughs> you know, yeah. th- those kinds of kids. Yeah. So you're you're uh, playing with a rubber band like right in the camera, like the way that um, Matthew McConaughey plays with plays with that booger when he's you know in the Lincoln car. People that probably Sorry. don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it was very uh, interesting. I was just like, is he trying to send me a message? Like I'm I'm but a rubber band or something. <laughs> All right, Berta, what's the final word? Well, I think that. Uh, there's two things that come to mind. One is uh, your circumstances when you are a child can trigger things like pooping in parking lots. <laughs> it can trigger you having very bad experience because you got moved to a school where you don't speak the language. Uh, but but if you can try to, all the, in all that darkness, try to find something you love and try to do a lot of that, then you will probably be giving better to the world than it gave you. And that's kind of the best thing we can hope for. Beautiful. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle in which we answer your patron emails. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.